Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. It's Monday, May 1st, 2023, and this is Markets Daily from Coindesk. I'm Adam B. Levine, here again with Adrian Bluss for your Daily News Roundup. On today's show, we're talking Bitcoin, another bank failure, the latest headlines, and more. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. Bitcoin, Ether, and most other top-traded tokens are down in markets that are mostly red. The original cryptocurrency had challenged $30,000 at one point on Sunday afternoon, but a sudden plunge later in the evening brought the price down to its current level, near the lower end of our recent range. BTC spent April changing hands between $27,400 and $31,000 as investors weighed two conflicting forces. Those would be, on the one hand, renewed hostility coming from U.S. regulators and several key legislators towards Coinbase and cryptocurrency more broadly, while on the other, the monetary policy-induced banking crisis of 2023 continues, which would be bullish, at least over the long term, for anything not in the traditional financial sector. Over the weekend, First Republic Bank was seized by the FDIC and immediately sold to the biggest bank in the U.S., which would of course also be the go-to partner for banking regulators, J.P. Morgan. It's not a good deal for anyone, especially FRC shareholders, but from the perspective of authorities whose credibility, among other things, are on the line, it was the best that they could do, unsurprising in our modern era. We'll discuss this more in the headlines. Investors will next be turning their attention to the U.S. Central Bank's Federal Open Market Committee, or FOMC, two-day meeting, which begins tomorrow. At that meeting, they'll engage in yet another round of performative financial voodoo that may or may not result in another quarter of a percentage point rate hike. But regardless of what they do, markets think that this is the end of the hiking cycle, since it's exactly that action, where the top U.S. monetary authorities essentially YOLO'd and swung the wheel on the monetary policy cruise ship at the fastest pace in percentage terms in history, that's now led to the second, third, and fourth largest U.S. banking failures ever so far this year. And it should be noted that the collapse of First Republic, after the Fed had let them swap all of their bad assets for liquid cash at face value, strongly suggests we're done with this hiking cycle. But then again, who can predict what'll happen when they're making it up as they bounce from one crisis of their own making to the next? The CME's VEDWATCH tool, by the way, is forecasting an 82% probability of a third consecutive 25 basis point or one quarter of one percentage point rate increase. Quote, Bitcoin has remained below $30,000, which is a key resistance level, but has not had to test any major supports just yet. Jody Pasquale, CEO of Bitbull Capital, told Coindesk in a note. Continuing, For now, the market is expecting a 25 basis point rate hike, but we're likely to see price swings following the Fed's post-release commentary. The attempts to breach $30,000 this week have failed to make a higher high, which should be concerning for the bulls, DePasquale also wrote. He concluded, In general, we would not be surprised to see the market leader testing $25,000 in the coming days, particularly after the FOMC. End quote. 
Elsewhere, the number of addresses on the Ethereum network with more than 32 ETH is showing signs of stabilizing after an initial post-upgrade decline. The March upgrade allowed investors to remove staked ETH that had previously been locked. A minimum of 32 Ether is required in order to stake the asset as part of Ethereum's consensus, which then yields rewards. Initial concerns were that the allowance of unstaking would create downside pressure on the price of the token, as investors, some of whom have had their tokens tied up in that smart contract since 2021, might be looking for the exits. But the concern has turned out to be unfounded, as ETH prices have increased by more than 10% since the upgrade. All in all, many market observers are saying things look pretty bullish for the Ethereum token, at least over the medium term. And now taking a quicker look at some smaller tokens, the big winner today is Index Chain or IDEX, which is up about 40% over the last 24 hours, while meme coin Baby Doge is down about 10% and showing a price so low that it resolves on my charts as zero, although I don't think that's actually the case. Today's crypto coverage comes courtesy of Coindesk Markets Analysts Lila Ledesma and Sam Reynolds. Bitcoin is trading at $28,571. That's down 1.5% since our show on Friday. While Ether is trading at 1,847 bucks per token, that's down about 2% over the same time period, according to the Coindesk Market Index. And speaking of the Coindesk Market Index, we're looking at an absolute reading this morning of 1,254. That compares against Friday's reading of 1,281 and represents a little bit more than a 2% loss across top traded tokens over that time period. And now with traditional markets, here's Adrian Blust. Thank you, Adam. Most global stocks traded positively over the weekend. In the U.S., the Dow Jones Industrial Average gained a quarter of a percent, while the S&P 500 gained just under three-tenths of a percent. The tech-heavy Nasdaq, meanwhile, gained four-tenths of a point. In Europe, major indices were mostly positive, with the regional stock 600 trading relatively flat. London's FTSE 100 and Germany's DAX, meanwhile, both gained just over a tenth of a point. In Asia, Chinese stocks were closed for a holiday. Japan's Nikkei 225, meanwhile, gained nine-tenths of a percent. In commodities markets, Brent crude, the global benchmark for oil, dropped nine-tenths of a percent, trading at $78.41 per barrel. Gold, meanwhile, gained seven-tenths of a point, trading at $2,014 per troy ounce. Today's traditional market coverage draws from the FT and MarketWatch. Thanks very much for that, Adrian. Stay tuned for after the break. We're going to dig into First Republic. We'll be right back. Hey listeners, Adam B. Levine here with some exciting news. As of Monday, May 1st, you'll be able to find Markets Daily on the Coindesk Podcast Network, as well as this feed that you currently subscribe to. The Coindesk Podcast Network actually is something that I started when I was a managing editor at Coindesk and has tons of interesting content that'll take you beyond the headlines and provide a wide array of perspectives, which is something very important to me. We've got a very special program to share with you on May 1st to kick off this next era in the history of Markets Daily. So go check it out. Give it a follow. You'll find the link in the show notes. And thanks for listening. Welcome back. On Friday, I walked you through how this current moment actually had its genesis in the aftermath of the 2001 tech bubble, and how despite many promises, very little has come to pass as the experts had predicted. Outside of their true goal, which is apparently to simply keep the politics, money, and power scam going for as long as possible, no matter the cost to the vast majority of those these institutions are at least intended to serve. And as you probably know, it didn't even take a day. By late Friday, rumors were swirling that First Republic Bank, the 14th largest bank in the U.S. and the second largest bank failure in the nation's history, would be shut down and sold off to a larger bank, with the FDIC providing capital to get the deal done. And that's exactly what happened. Over the weekend, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, or FDIC, put out a last call for offers and seemingly got few bidders since I went to sleep last night without any announced resolution. 
That lack of clarity on Sunday evening is something the banking regulators try to avoid, since the whole point here is to calm markets by proving they have the situation under control. And in recent examples like Silicon Valley Bank, they like to announce takeovers before futures open for trading late on Sunday. And so it was early this morning that too-big-to-fail bank J.P. Morgan was announced as having acquired all of First Republic's deposits and a, quote, substantial majority of assets, end quote. To get the deal done, the FDIC had to eat about $17 billion worth of toxic assets on FRC's balance sheet and enter into a loss-sharing agreement with J.P. Morgan for the bank's assets. The move here broadly is an attempt to avoid two extremely undesirable outcomes by taking a third, also extremely undesirable, but not quite as bad path. The outcomes to avoid here were, on the one hand, a complete and obvious bailout by taxpayers, which is correctly seen as politically toxic, while on the other, avoiding putting the FDIC in an awkward position where they need to again break their own rules and ensure all deposits, even those in excess of a quarter of a million dollars, which is their cap. And had the bank failed, they likely would have done just that, as U.S. monetary authorities from the president on down have been proclaiming the U.S. banking system safe and secure as a way to try to prevent further customer withdrawals. Had that happened, they would have been faced with a choice of, do we let large depositors take losses, which will then scare more large depositors at other smaller banks, which have the same underlying issues, into moving their funds to J.P. Morgan, who we will obviously never allow to fail, or do we prove ourselves obvious short-term fixated liars again by bailing out all depositors, even though it's against our own rules and we really don't have the money to do this very many times? The third path, the one that was taken, was for J.P. Morgan, the biggest U.S. bank, to get bigger. And that's what happened. The big question, of course, is whether or not the problems underlying this year's series of major bank collapses have been resolved, at least to the point where we're done with customer withdrawals pushing them into obvious failures. The Federal Reserve, of course, in the aftermath of SVB's collapse, rolled out essentially a bailout facility by any other name, which allowed banks like First Republic to swap their illiquid underwater assets for fresh cash from the central bank, which could then be used to pay out depositors fleeing to J.P. Morgan or another too big to fail. And yet, even with that facility in place and with FRC a large user of it, that didn't save the 14th largest bank. We don't know what'll happen next, but it's a story we'll be watching. In related news, the FDIC, or Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, is set to publish a new report this afternoon that'll likely argue for changes on how deposit insurance, which is currently limited at least in theory to a quarter of a million dollars per account, works. It's the agency's third such report so far this year. And as we wait for what are sure to be amazing recommendations, there are a few things to note. First, the FDIC is at least nominally funded by fees on banks who benefit from its coverage. And as of their December 2022 report, which are the last available numbers on their website, they had about $128 billion in the fund. Today's purchase of FRC by JP Morgan is expected to cost the fund about $17 billion. And that's on top of a larger amount laid out earlier in the crisis on Silicon Valley and Signature Bank. So you can see how that $128 billion at the end of last year isn't actually very much at all. The regulator has said it will cover at least some of the expenses incurred this year by increasing its fees collected from all banks, which seems like a great idea that definitely won't cause any more problems given the current systemic issues across smaller banks. So that's the supply side, maybe $128 billion. But at the same time, there are more than a few in the halls of power who are calling for the nominal $250,000 per account insurance limit to be increased or removed altogether. I'll save you my thoughts on that idea, but it's worth mentioning here that there's nearly $18 trillion in U.S. deposits that, were the limit removed, whether formally or just in practice, that less than $128 billion would be expected to insure and bail out. So, how would that work? 
Well, obviously it wouldn't. It's a fig leaf designed to ease depositor concerns, because those perfectly reasonable concerns have now driven three of the 20 largest banks in the U.S. out of business in just the first half of the year. But to the benefit of the regulators, few people actually look at these numbers, mostly content to have these self-proclaimed experts lie to them for their own good. There's a longer conversation to be had here about the alternative to this stupid dance. But in the meantime, stay tuned for that report out this afternoon. We've got Reuters, the FDIC, and new stats from the St. Louis Fed linked on this one. Elsewhere, Argentina plans to purchase most Chinese imports in yuan rather than dollars to conserve its diminishing USD reserves. The country intends to pay around $1 billion of Chinese imports in yuan in April, followed by approximately $790 million monthly. The move aims to reduce dollar outflows, according to Economy Minister Sergio Massa. Argentina expanded a currency swap with China by $5 billion in November to bolster its reserves. As the peso's value has plummeted, Bitcoin reached a record high in Argentina. Additionally, cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, which operate independently of governments and central banks, are becoming increasingly popular alternatives. Bitcoin's peer-to-peer weekly volume in Argentina hit a record high of nearly $30 million in March on the Paxful exchange. We've got Zero Hedge linked in the show notes on this one. Meanwhile, the U.S. House Financial Services Committee and House Agriculture Committee will reportedly put together legislation to oversee the crypto sector, quote, in the next two months, end quote, after holding joint public hearings starting in May. That's according to Representative Patrick McHenry, a Republican from North Carolina who chairs the House Financial Services Committee. When asked whether such a bill could be signed by President Joe Biden in the next 12 months, McHenry told a crowd at Coindesk's consensus, quote, yes, end quote. The key lawmaker was quick to provide a rider that it's always a challenge to legislate something new into existence. Quote, what we plan to do over the next two months is report a deal out, McHenry said, adding that the bill will address both securities and commodities regimes and issues that are hard to fix on either side. Senator Cynthia Lummis, a Republican from Wyoming, the other panelist during the session, said she looked forward to coordinating those efforts with McHenry, adding that the House had a better chance in the Senate of getting legislation through earlier. She said that if the House moves first on crypto, it would, quote, improve our chances, end quote, in the Senate. Quote, we have tried to keep partisan tinge off this subject, Lummis said. Continuing, this is a bipartisan subject we need to address before the 2024 election. Coindesk's Amitaj Singh reports. In regulatory news, Bitcoin kiosk company CoinMe has agreed to pay $4 million to settle charges by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, alleging it was party to an unregistered security offering, the regulator announced Friday. CoinMe, its subsidiary UpGlobal, SECZ, and the CEO of both entities, Neil Burquest, are all targeted in the order for allegedly running a crypto fundraiser, known as an Initial Coin Offering, or ICO, in 2017 for UpToken. The SEC accused the parties of, quote, making false and misleading statements concerning the demand for UpToken and the amount raised in the offering, end quote. The order is the latest in a string of enforcement actions and heavy fines by the securities regulator that has forced some firms to shutter all or part of their operations. Coindesk's Sandali Handagama has the story. In other news, the executive in charge of crypto product and blockchain at MasterCard said the payment processing company is bringing out a service designed to ensure transactions between users' wallets are verifiable and legally compliant, beginning with transfers of digital assets between countries. In this first cross-border use case, the MasterCard Crypto Credential Service, announced Friday from the stage of Consensus 2023, allows wallets to be identified in transactions that are compliant with requirements such as the Financial Action Task Forces, or FATF's so-called travel rule. 
MasterCard Crypto Credential, a set of common standards for attestation, uses technology from CypherTrace, the well-known blockchain analytics platform that MasterCard agreed to acquire back in late 2021. Coindesk's Ian Allison has more on this one. And finally, payments company PayPal will allow on-chain transfers from Venmo accounts starting in May. Jose Fernandez da Ponte, the company's senior vice president and general manager of blockchain, crypto, and digital currencies, said during a panel at Consensus 2023, quote, you can buy a gift on Venmo and send it out. You can invite people, send it to another Venmo user. You can send it to a PayPal user. You can send it to an external wallet. You can send it to the hardware wallet, which we think is something fundamentally important, da Ponte said. Continuing, consumers have been asking for that for a while, end quote. The announcement comes a year after the payments company said third-party wallets would be coming to the PayPal and Venmo platforms, with PayPal itself now already offering this feature. Coindesk's Helene Braun reports on that. Thanks for listening. And that's our show for today. Thank you very much for listening. If you have any questions or comments, send the show an email at podcast at coindesk.com or you can email me directly at adamlevine at coindesk.com. If you like what we're doing, we always appreciate reviews on Apple Podcasts or your preferred listening platform. This episode was produced by Adrian Blust and myself with further support from the podcast team over at coindesk.com. Have a great rest of your day and we'll be back tomorrow with another episode of Markets Daily.